welcome to another exciting episode of Radio Zaddy, uh, your fix, uh, your podcast fix for queer culture, queer history, queer science. You're here with me, uh, Daisy Thurston Gent, and my co-host, the wonderful, <laughs> absolutely wonderful, the intelligent, the stunning. Are you just trying to get back at me <laughs> for all the times I've introduced what you? Can I give you? Um, no, that's it. It's Hannah Benswick. <laughs> We're going to cut it short there. Hi, Daisy. <laughs> This is why I shouldn't be in charge of uh, intros. No, I love it. How are you doing? I'm all right. Um, yeah, I'm doing okay, actually. Yeah. Yeah. You've had a nice week off. I have. I, uh, or just weekend? Um, I've had a few yeah, a few days off. Um, went up to the Lake District for the first time ever. Can't believe And was you. living my sort of rural queer fantasy kind of... Amazing. You know, climbing around and mostly slipping. I did slip at one point <laughs> uh, onto my bottom and I slid at least... Two or three meters, which is quite dangerous a time to, to slide. Enough you know, time to, to think about it, right? Yeah, and you're like, to slide, oh dear. You know, I went through the whole motions of like, you know, acceptance and denial. You know, I was like, I'm not falling. I am falling. I could die. I could slip off this cliff. But I didn't. I'm here. I live to tell the tale. Good. You didn't take anyone down with you, did you? No, I didn't. Good. I was luckily not holding any children or animals at Good. that point. Just myself. You know, I'm just responsible look, for myself. You got to look after number one. <laughs> I was not looking after number one as well as I could have done. Um, okay, I'm sorry about that. I was that. having a nice experience anyway. Yeah, the Lake District is very sweet. Uh, I'm glad you had a nice time away. Thank you, how are you? Yeah, I'm okay. I've been. I've just been here. It's been really hot. And that's about it, yeah. Just here in the in the podcast. Just in, in the tent. tent. Just <laughs> just waiting for the next that's why it's hot. time we can do a podcast. <laughs> it's all I live for, really, to be honest. I'm trying desperately to think about anything at all that I've done in the last week and I can't think of anything so here we are I've been researching that's been fun did you read Wind in the Willows from your last week? no no, no. I started re- I actually started reading a uh, graphic novel called Farmhand uh, Reap What Is Sown which is about this guy who develops a technology to grow human organs on trees what? And it's really, it's really great. It's <laughs> brilliant. That's yeah. really good. Uh, definitely lend, lend me that next time. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> when you're done. It's great art. But Daisy, what have you got for me today? I keep trying to pepper uh, my reading with like the occasional non-queer text. Yeah. I feel like I've really kind of, my my reading list has a bit of a monopoly going on. Uh, yeah, queer writing. <laughs> Which is not a bad thing, you know. They no. were denied to us for so long. Yeah. Anyway, what am I going to talk to you about today? So you may have heard me uh, singing a bit this morning. So I I've been, did so I've been hear trying you to singing. do a bit of research uh, about about space, about um, gays in space, uh, about the space, about space being hella gay. Yeah. Um. So I've been singing, I've been humming along to lots of yeah, kind of giveaway music tracks this morning. I was. <laughs> but you were singing bed knobs and broomsticks this I morning. I was. No, you were was singing. That, no, but you started that. Anyway, I've been singing. Um, I've been singing a bit of Elton John. I've been singing a bit of Yes, um, Rocket Man. Rocket Man. Anyway, so I, th- I was like, I have to finish this research, otherwise Hannah's gonna. I'm gonna give the game away. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, I've been looking at the kind of um, uh, the the bond and the connection between um, LGBT people uh, and space. Love it. So Colin uh, Bedell, uh, co-founder of the website QueerCosmos.com. Mm also explores this kind of unspoken bond between LGBT people in space. Um, and Vidal refers back to this this concept of permission, about how space is fundamentally queer in that it is like totally unapologetic. Mm. It's kind of limitless um, and, you know, anything is possible. And I think as queer people, we can kind of really latch onto that. Yeah, so I'm going to talk about some... I'm going to talk about a few famous gays in space, uh, some gays of which I space. hope you'll know, uh, yeah, some of which it. you might not. Uh, as well as well as kind of whether or not whether uh, space can be considered a kind of queer utopia or somewhere that maybe mm. queer people can just kind of yeah because I guess like space features so heavily in uh, obviously sci-fi mm. and sci-fi is about imagining a utopia perfect yeah, yeah, world yeah. and I think as queer people we really latch on to like what would be the perfect world let's go to space and start the queer yeah, colony yeah, yeah. you know let's start again I think let's that try is... again. And I don't think that has to be, like, such a, you know, maybe that's quite a negative view of, like, life on Earth now, but, you know, that idea that, yeah, you just scrap everything and you want to completely start again without all, you know, the kind of, yeah, the limitations and boundaries um, that we really have. So first I'm going to talk about someone I've been reading about uh, this week, um, who, have you heard of John Carmichael? No. No. Okay, so... John Carmichael is a self-taught uh, astronomy photography artist, um, most famous for his uh, photographic work um, 108, 108 no. uh, which captured the great American solar eclipse of 2017. It's this like, amazing photograph, um, which John took. He took the shot on board a Southwest Airlines flight, timed perfectly to be in the precise spot to snap 
the full solar eclipse, uh, as well as the shadow on the ground below. And why I'm talking about John Carmichael is because John now plans to become the first openly gay man to go into space. Yes, John! Uh, as part of uh, the first civilian space mission, uh, the Dear Moon Project. I don't know if you've heard of the Dear Moon Yes! Project. Oh my god, I tried to apply to Dear Moon. Did you? <laughs> yes! Because okay. I was like, this is amazing. But I got to be like... Obviously, I did the first initial application yeah, form, yeah. and then it was like, now do another one. And I was like, okay. And then it was like, now do a third one. I was like, this is too many forms. So I stopped. <laughs> because it's um, funded by, I want to call him a benevolent billionaire. <laughs> Dear Moon, yeah, 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 tell me about it. Um, so Dear Moon uh, is, yeah, the first civilian space mission. Uh, space mission. Uh, it's launching, it's due to launch into the cosmos in 2023. So okay. it's coming up. Yeah. So this is in our lifetime, this, uh, yeah, public space mission. I'm going to keep saying space mission. Space mission. Like mm. uh, <laughs> so the SpaceX rocket developed by Elon Musk, of course, then, uh, will transport passengers in a week-long journey around around the moon and back again. Just say hi. Yeah, just back. to be like, hey, moon. Uh, yeah. yeah. And that yeah, the kind of recruitment process has been quite interesting and you know very uh, you know a very modern take on it where they're inviting a lot of you know artists and um kind of creative people to apply yeah um, so i actually watched john carmichael's um dear moon submission video and it was, it was very inspiring you know it opens very simply and it just says my name is john carmichael and i want to go to the moon and it's yeah. just like great and he's got the lovely kind yeah. of twinkly music because he believes that you know as an astrophotographer he describes how photographing space has been a very humbling experience for him in that it kind of changes your pers- your perspective and it brings you this enormous amount of personal peace but also you know sparks curiosity which mm. he thinks is something uh, that he believes we need a lot more of here on earth and he believes he would be a, a terrific candidate for the uh, for space travel yeah so I'm going to read you Dear Moon's mission statement. People are creative and have a great imagination. We all have the ability to dream dreams that have never been dreamt, to sing songs that have never been sung, to paint that which has never been seen before. I hope that this project will inspire the dreamer within each of us. Aww. So that's lovely. Um, and of course, you know, a lot of queer people are going to connect to that. Yeah. So John's uh, submission to be an astronaut on the, uh, the Dear Moon project is endorsed by uh, another LGBTQ activist, um, an actor, George Techie. Oh, yeah. Yep, best yeah, known yeah. for his role in uh, the televised series Star Trek. Yes, absolutely. Um, yep, playing uh, Hikaru Sulu on the Starship Enterprise. Mm-hmm. So he tweeted his support for John when he heard about the mission, uh, saying, first gay man to go to space, I can certainly relate to that dream. So everybody's like <laughs> yeah. fully on board with John yeah, Carmichael becoming go. like the first kind of openly gay man to go into space. So more about the Dim Moon Project. Uh, in 2018, all seats on board the SpaceX uh, rocket were were purchased by uh, Yasuku Mizawa, uh, also known as MZ, mm. um, who's a Japanese fashion entrepreneur, uh, casual billionaire, yeah. uh, with a mild obsession for space travel. So MZ is an art collector who believes that uh, art has the power to promote world peace. Quite a big claim. Mm. But he consequently announced that the eight crew members selected would consist of civilians, artists, yeah, encouraged artists from around the world to apply, uh, with a vision to document... Uh, this incredible journey in a way to inspire the world. So he bought all the seats and said, we're going to inspire the world by getting artists to go because we want to see what they think of space, Um, you know, from a kind of non, the traditional kind of scientific route in, which I think is quite an interesting um, take. Yeah, I can't believe you didn't, you didn't complete the application. I know, I was just, I think, when was it, when did it open, the application process? In in 2017 or something. No, it was, it it was, it was either this year or last year. Okay, well, and there was a pandemic going on, and I was like, I just don't know if I can deal with this right now. So it would have been the end of 2018 because that's when um, MZ bought all the seats. So it must have been straight away bought all the bought all the seats. Um, Interesting. Okay, I'll have a look because it could have been I remember. I just, I just think that it was. I mean, I can't believe that I was so lazy that I just didn't. It was just too many forms for me. But obviously, that means I'm not destined to go to space. Uh, also, I think I. I think it would be really scary. It would be. <laughs> it would be really scary. Yeah. And I wonder if part of me was reluctant to go, mm-hmm. and that part of me won out in the end. Yeah. And I was like, oh, they also have you. You've got a time limit for filling in the form as well. So it's like mm-hmm. you need to fill this in in two days. Yeah. And that made it very easy for me to be like, oh, I'm busy that day. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I mean, it's it's obviously like space travel it peaks like space and the moon, like particularly you know definitely sparked the interest with 
I don't know, certainly like poets and artists. Mm. And, and I, I like honestly, I love stargazing. Like I love looking up at the the sky. I love the moon. I've got a watch that has the moon phase on it, and I just I love looking at the stars. But there's something about the vast emptiness of actual space when you get there that is quite terrifying. <laughs> yeah. In the tagline of it, the Alien movie is in space, nobody can hear you scream, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and there's a lot of horror set in space, and so I think. Yeah. It was a real battle inside of me being like, oh my god, I want to go to the moon. And yeah. also, but there's nothing there. Yeah, I could be free, but also lost. Lost, um, so lost. Yeah, I just love it. And I think there is, you know, definitely that line that you can draw between, um, I don't know, queer dreaming and um, and why space is chosen yeah. as a kind of setting for your queer dreams. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to talk about some other, other people, other gays in space. Um, I've got a little anecdote about uh, the next person I'm going to talk about. Yeah. So I had a bit of a faux pas at a pub quiz once uh, where they asked uh, who the first woman in space was. Mm. Uh, and I uh, very kind of confidently insisted to my team that it was Sally Ride. Um, and in okay. actual fact, Sally Ride uh, was just the first American woman, uh, but also the first known lesbian in space. Oh. So to set the record straight, uh, Veronica Tereshkova was the very first woman in space. Um, but seeing as like I'm always trying to push the, the, the gay agenda, um, I'm just going to scoot right past her great achievement and talk about, focus on like what can serve the LGBT community. So, yeah, you know, as we scout... Sorry, them, Russians. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, Veronica Tereshkova. Excellent. Was she Russian? Okay, cool, yeah. cool, good. <laughs> Of course she was. They've got a pretty good space program, but they, I just wanted to make sure. Well. Yeah, that would um, be my faux pas. <laughs> yeah, my faux pas. Yeah, we. I mean, we need to kind of scout the you know every corner of the Earth and the cosmos and um, mm. the atmosphere for for these queer role models. So, Dr. Sally Ride. Sally Ride uh, was a student in 1977 at the time when NASA began to look for female astronauts quite mm. like publicly. Um, she saw an advert in the school newspaper, which was inviting, encouraging women to apply for um, the astronaut program. Um, so she did. Uh, along with 8,000 other applicants. Fucking um, hell. And only 35 of those 8,000 people were successful. And Sally Ride was one of only six women chosen for this programme. So it's a pretty cool achievement. Yeah. Um, out of 8,000 people, she was one of six women. And on June 18th, 1983, Sally Ride became the first American woman to fly in space. Uh, she was an astronaut on the space shuttle mission, on a space shuttle mission where her job was to work the uh, robotic arm um, to put kind of satellites into space. So it's the outer the outer arm that goes on your, your spaceship. The fucking cool robot the fucking arm. cool robot arm. And so Sally, you know, Sally rides, her sexuality was... So the reason I, I mentioned John Carmichael is because he's he was he's going to be the first openly gay man in space, mm. whereas Sally Ride, like, her sexuality was kept more or less private, um, you know, until her death in 2012, where her obituary on the Sally Ride Science Organization's website uh, revealed that she was survived by Tam O'Shaughnessy, her, which was her partner of 27 years. So that was kind of the first time it was publicly acknowledged online. Um, obviously, her you know family knew and friends, of course, knew that yeah. um, you know she lived with her partner for 27 years. The pair were sort of they became life partners, and um, but originally were um, friends from a very young age when they used to play mm. tennis together. Which, um, oh my god, that's so cute! The natural progression from larking around playing tennis to space travel. Um, <laughs> oh, I thought you tennis to lesbian lovers. Um, <laughs> the natural progression. I was thinking about whether or not it was her choice to keep it a secret or if it had been like a NASA publicity thing where they were like don't tell anyone you're like you know a moth muncher because that would be weird yeah so there was um, I'm going to go on to talk about that yeah um, because of course there was this yeah there is a connection um, and it was very much like it doesn't need to be it would be seen as kind of damaging to her career and her mm. reputation whether that would have who knows how that would have played out but as we've seen in, in so many other episodes like coming out or being outed has um, affected so many people in, in history just because of the prejudices against yeah, yeah. the LGBT community. So in later life, the pair lived uh, happily in a quite idyllic lesbian setup with their dog Gypsy. Um, and there's some lovely photographs I found of the pair of them um, with their little kind of bijon, kind of fluffy little little puppy. I so they were a lovely family. It was such a lovely family. Uh, so Tam O'Shaughnessy is now a, a children's science writer uh, and the executive director of the Sally Ride Science um organization which is a kind of non-profit organization mm-hmm. uh teaching children about um yeah about science and it's about encouraging kind of uh, diversity and inclusion in within um education around uh, around science and technology mm. so sally ride famously said uh, you can't be what you can't see and that's yeah. kind of her her quote that is i really like yeah because yeah, um, yeah. i feel it just it pretty much sums up the importance of, of representation mm. you know to any young person trying to navigate the cosmos or or otherwise 
Ride has long served as a role model for you know a generation of young girls, but indeed part of her legacy is now very much like her visibility as a lesbian in you know in this profession opens up the door for other queer people. I mean, yeah, space travel is a hugely praised industry, and it's like a really what's the word like I don't want to say like high flying because that is just a terrible pun, but like it's it's really like revered and it's yeah, it's really it's respected. held in high esteem, isn't it? And it it's really just is. like I guess it's it beyond what most people can even comprehend achieving. Yeah. 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 So, like, of course that inspired, like, a generation of young girls, and it's, and particularly, like, now, it can really encourage, like, LGBT youth to come forward, you know, without shame or compromise. Um, and, yeah, she paved this really bold pathway, yeah. you know, in the name of science and discovery, um, you know, an opportunity that should be open to all, regardless of sexuality, gender, or, you know, or any kind of, any, you know, your background. Uh, her, I've got a quote from her sister, Bear Ride. Her sister is called Bear. What? Um, B-E-A-R? Bear. Bear. Yeah, Sister Bear Ride, uh, who is also gay. Um, and Bear Ride describes uh, Sally's approach to life as fearless. Um, and she said, uh, I hope it makes it easier for kids growing up gay that they know that another one of their heroes was like them. And That's amazing. Like, yeah. That's so cute. Love that she's called Bear. I know. Um, is she, like, hench? I don't know. I, I want didn't her to be hench. hench. <laughs> I want, yeah, with a name like Bear. Um, Gotta be. I love it. So Bear and Sally. So in 2001, um, Sally Ride and um, Tam O'Shaughnessy uh, and a small group of colleagues founded the Sally Ride Science, founded Sally Ride Science, a, a company that is devoted to equal and excellent STEM education. Mm. So it continues, very much continues Sally's work to inspire young people sort of from all walks of life. And in 2013, Br- uh, President Barack Obama post, uh, posthumously awarded Sally Ride with the Presidential Medal of Freedom and O'Shaughnessy was asked to accept the medal on behalf of her life partner um, and described the experience as my national coming out and Sally's too. So there's, you know, there's this ongoing theme of people, you know, posthumously being awarded um, and recognised and hailed as LGBT icons, um, you know, quite rightfully. Yeah. And so going back to what you were saying, I I read an article on Mm. space.com that explores why there aren't that many openly gay astronauts and the the author Natalie uh, Wachova mentioned that uh, while NASA's policy is to accept recruits from all walks of life and not discriminate, apparently like the office culture um, tells a bit of a different story. So in 2012, over 61% of NASA's former and current astronauts had served in the US military, mm. which I think is a very important connection. Um, yeah. Because we know that, uh, so the US military operated a, a don't ask, don't tell policy. Yeah, which was essentially like, you can't be queer and be in the army, but if we don't know... What we don't know, we can't punish you for. Exactly. So just keep it a secret. Just keep it to yourself. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that was in... The US military had that policy in place until 2011. Jesus Christ. Um, so, yeah, gay and, mem- gay and lesbian members of the military had to remain closeted yeah. or they would risk being you know, booted out altogether. So if you kind of draw that line over, you know, to the space flight programmes, uh, initially, you know, being sort of set up as army programmes in space, yeah. you know, a lot of the recruits were, you know, had served in the military yeah. or the navy. So brought that legacy with them. Yeah, exactly. Because it wouldn't, it wouldn't have been like the done thing to mention your sexuality or indeed yeah, anything that might in some way kind of detract from like the mission or mm. like, the space mission. Whereas now you've got, um, you know, outlists. In, I mean, many scientific professions have got outlets where people can publicly, you know, professors and, and students and, and, you know, you have this a lot in like sporting events where you can just have a, you know, a public forum um, to kind of, you know, connect with other people in, in your profession. And so there's the Astronomy and Astrophysics Outlist, uh, which aims to promote a productive professional environment and like just basically champion inclusivity sort of in a very kind, you know, it is about being proud, but it's just about being visible, really. Mm. And it's very much like there's been a huge uptake in students, um, you know, STEM education students who are like approaching the working world and about yeah, to kind of in STEM enter. is science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Mathematics. Yes. Sometimes they tag medicine on the end with another M. STEM. But STEM. But yeah. Okay, that's cool. Mm. Um, yeah. So there's there's a huge connection of why, yeah, you would keep it, yeah, keep silent, and you know, it would sort of potentially damage your um, potentially damage your reputation. Yeah, so O'Shaughnessy um, had ba- has like since spoken out like quite openly about the obstacles that Sally Ride faced as a gay woman in the profession, mm. saying that like she didn't want to hurt NASA by publicly coming out. Fuck. Yes, that's a bit, a little bit sad. Um, yeah. So you don't really, so you don't really find out about, and a lot of you know, during my research, I found it quite hard to find, um, you know, the names of people. I had to kind of, I d- went down a bit of a Wikipedia hole yeah. where I was just, you know, clicking on the names of all these, you know, 
female astronauts and just trying to find out and like right at the bottom there'd be mm. a footnote saying like oh this person was married to a woman and yeah. like it wouldn't be it wouldn't be kind of like the main thing you knew about somebody because yeah. you weren't allowed to kind of talk about it really it's so it's one of those things where you have to like piece together the history by looking for the clue so you know you may find somebody's listed spouse if they were straight mm-hmm. and married to this person but we find ourselves looking at celebrities like going to personal life and seeing if they've been particularly close friends with a person of the same sex that they live with for a long time and interpreting mm-hmm. that in in a queer way um rather than actually just being told out and out this person was queer as if it's something that is to be buried yeah in, yeah, definitely. In the details, yeah. Something that's hidden. Uh, another uh, key lesbian astronaut I read about was uh, Captain Wendy Lawrence, uh, who embarked on a total of four space flights uh, and logged over 1,200 hours in space. Gosh. So that was her time card. Um, <laughs> Lawrence uh, was on a mission... Uh, Lawrence was a mission specialist um, on the crew of the STS-114 and was in charge of the transfer of supplies and equipment and operated the space station robotic arm mm. on the return to flight mission. Uh, the return to flight mission was yep. um, the first space shuttle flight after the the Columbia disaster. Which was an explosion? I think it exploded on the way back in, yeah. hitting, coming back into okay. Earth. That's really sad. So it was very much like, get back on the horse, return to return to flight. So oh, to God, go on this, yeah. you know, to be the first, to go on, to be that... F- to be on that first space shuttle mission after such a prominent, you know, and public disaster is quite brave. Um, mm, mm. So Captain Wendy Lawrence is now uh, currently retired um, and lives in Washington with her wife, uh, Kathy Watson. Very cute. Uh, another space dyke. I don't know whether I'm allowed to just... Space dyke. Space dyke. Uh, another space dyke to watch out for is um, Anne McLean, who in June 2013 became the youngest astronaut on nasa's roster yes um so that was pretty cool so her call sign um is animal which apparently dates back to her like rugby days and she's described (laughs) as being a bit of a bruiser um (laughs) nicknamed bear yeah (laughs) animal uh excellent and animal spelt with two n's like animal oh that's a bit of a like a a roller derby name as well yeah yeah yeah. animal animal um so that kind of paints the picture. Anyway, she, uh, so Anne McLean was uh, a flight engineer for the Expedition 58-59, um, which went to the International Space Station in 2018. Uh, and last year, so in December 2020, um, it was announced she was announced as one of NASA's Artemis astronauts, which is a program uh, that aims to return humans to the moon in, I think they said originally it would be 2022, but we'll see if that happens. Yeah. Um, <laughs> There's been... A delay. <laughs> yeah, it's been a delay, but it's been it was sort of initiated by um you know Trump's government and also it's been I think endorsed by Biden, so maybe it will still go ahead. Um, yeah, but she yeah, was yeah. selected. Yeah, to be she's a current astronaut and is definitely that's so that, really you cool. Know, there could be another lesbian in space uh, very very soon or go, walking on the moon. I think she'd be the first. Well, people on that mission will be the first women to walk on the moon, so that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and if they're queer women as well, even. Even better, I think. So some uh, some lesser known but other notable queers in the realm of space study. These are all people, are, you know, you can find them on, on Twitter and they have, a re- it's just a really nice insight into how people view the world. Um, so you've got Emily Hunt, who's an astronomy PhD student uh, searching for open star clusters. Ooh. Transgender astrophysicist Dr. Rebecca Oppenheimer who uh, discovered the first brown dwarf star. Ooh. Pretty cool. Very cool. Uh, Dr. Jessica Mink, um, another trans astrophysicist uh, who discovered the rings around the planet uh, Uranus, mm-hmm. Dr. Nergis Mavavlava, who proved Einstein's theory of gravitational waves. Excellent. Uh, these are all awesome queer people, and these are I do encourage you to like, go look, yeah. go look up these uh, these people. Uh, and Dr. James Pollock, uh, whose study of dust storms on Mars actually led to research into climate change on Earth. Wow. So these are all like big contenders. You know, in in the and world all of alive. science, yeah, all alive. Wow. Yeah, so pretty cool. Um, but yeah, so a lot of these examples are, are white people, which I do want to kind of acknowledge uh, because there's just been there's been a long history of people of color being left out of the space travel narrative, um, or or at least you know those public uh, stories that are publicly kind of celebrated. Um, there's a lot of racism in well in science and technology in mm. general. But I was reading um about somebody called uh, Moira McTeer who is a black astrophysicist uh, who identifies as uh, bisexual and pansexual, mm-hmm. who explained that she didn't have a traditional kind of privileged 
uh, awakening to kickstart her like interest in astronomy. Mm-hmm. So there was no like look up at the stars moment. You know, didn't grow up in rural wherever like Norfolk where there's no light pollution or anything yeah, like that. Like yeah. very much didn't have that kind of uh, distilling. You know, I look up at the stars and I knew I wanted to be an astronaut moment. Mm-hmm. Like she, none of that. So apparently she only took a, an astronomy class in her sophomore year because uh, the course promised free pizza every week. I would also take that class. So I think it's like, well, it's space, well, we'll find out, but also free pizza. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, she has since joined the Committee of the Status of Minorities in Astronomy, which, mm. um, you know, to combat racism within astronomy. Yeah. Um, and McTeer also hosts a podcast called Exelor, where she talks to space experts about what life might be like on uh, different kinds of alien planets. Sounds amazing. So that sounds great. So go check that out. Yeah, we should tag her in the post. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, But yeah, so there are, you know, if you look, if you kind of scratch the surface, there are, you know, there are people from all walks of life who kind of find their way into into astronomy. Have you you heard of the the overview effect? No. So the overview effect is, uh, it typically describes what astronauts uh, go through when they first view the Earth from space. Um, and apparently it's, you know, it's been described as this kind of grounding moment of seeing um, the planet as a single living entity, mm. a whole organism kind of transcending borders, race, sexual orientation or religion. Um, and I think, you know, I think this can be considered a very queer experience, you know, that kind of moment of just we all exist, we're all in this together, um, mm. you know, having that connection, that kind of unspoken connection to, you know, to the to the earth uh, and to the atmosphere and mm. to each other yeah and i think so this this connection between queer people in space is i think very much attached to this promise of like the unknown and you know of danger and adventure and it being kind of intriguing but you know it's without limitation mm-hmm. the idea that this uh, that space you know the, the idea that there could be a place out there to exist without the models of heteronormativity um and the kind of confines that we experience on Earth. And I think I certainly, I kind of gravitate towards that in some, you know, in some ways. The LGBT community and like, you know, many celebrities and artists have this kind of long-standing public appreciation of the cosmos. You've got, of course, you've got Elton John singing, um, I'm not the man they think I am at home mm. uh, in Rocketman. Yeah. And uh, yeah, there's just this idea of like, you're being something different and you're being maybe a more authentic version of yourself. If you don't have those boundaries, I think it's, super queer yeah um yeah i was reading some some um i think it was an article actually about how unsurprising it is that during lockdown and not being around people who are constantly reinforcing heteronormative or cisgendered expectations how many people are sort of realizing that they don't feel cis or het Mm. once they're out like now that they've spent more time away from the pressures of outside yeah. and how much it allows people to realise who they feel much more comfortable being. I can see that totally happening in space. There's nobody around to reinforce like social expectations and you can just be you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's interesting that the, yeah, the Dear Moon project has kind of launched during a time when the world is completely going topsy-turvy. Yeah. It? So I wanted to kind of, yeah, I mean, space is kind of the ultimate true escapism, I think. For, for queer people um, and I wanted to finish uh, today's my segment of the episode um, with a quote from um, a, uh, a queer poet of colour um, called Denez Smith um, and I wanted to read a section from their poem uh, Dear White America mm-hmm. as I think it kind of sums up quite nicely why people might travel to space I've left earth in search of darker planets a solar system that revolves too near a black hole I have left a patch of dirt in my place and many of you won't know the difference. I've left Earth and I am touching everything you beg your telescopes to show you. I'm giving the stars their right names. And this life, this new story in history, you cannot steal or sell or cast overboard or hang or beat or drown or own or redline or shackle or silence or cheat or choke or cover up or jail or shoot or jail or shoot or jail or shoot or ruin. This, if only this one, is ours. Wow. So, there we go. Yeah. That was, um, that was Denez Smith's, uh, an excerpt from Denez Smith's poem, Dear White America. Uh, yeah, let's all, let's all follow, go on to Dear Moon website and have a look, because it's just a really inspiring website. And yeah. It, just, it does, like, spark your curiosity. You're also able to, there's an Instagram filter they've made where you can try on a space a little suit, space helmet and you can like <laughs> you see the reflection of the moon and like you know oh. the line of the earth and the sun like 
in in the Hellmyth and um I'll definitely be including so uh, myself of that because it's really cute. Yeah, I think there's so much more to say about it, but um, I'm going to leave it there and just say, you know, do a bit of research, uh, re- you know, look at the Sally Ride Science Organisation, go look up all of those scientists, uh, follow them on Twitter, see what they've got to say about the world. I think it's I a great well place funny. to start. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, I'm on the Dear Moon website now. It's so funny. It's the first civilian mission to the moon. So good. Ah, wishing to give as many talented individuals as possible the opportunity to go in. He announced in March 2021 his plans to choose eight members for the crew from across the world. So good. But also, I missed out on that. What a, <laughs> what a letdown. It's happening now. It's so so cool. amazing. Daisy, thank you so much. That was thank so you. interesting. Gaze in space. When you were talking about uh, space dikes, or like, uh, I started in my head drawing a picture of like little cartoon uh, queer people in spacesuits on the moon putting up a little queer flag yeah, instead of the American one. Yeah, let's do that. Why do they get their flag make, up there? Let's get, yeah, take a flag, just sneak it in. Um, <laughs> yeah, animal. This is, uh, this is Daisy on Earth to animal. Please, can you take a queer progress flag with you? Yes. Uh, just sneak it in under your bonnet. Under your bonnet. Your space bonnet. That was really great. Thank you. I really enjoyed that. An intro. It's an intro. Intro. All right. Um, I'm actually... I feel like we've we've switched places because you talked about space. I'm going to talk about the Bloomsbury Group or the Bloomsbury Set today. Oh, excellent topic. I was talking to my mum about them a couple of weeks ago when I went to see her and she kept calling the Bloomsbury Set and I was like, what is this? Some kind of collectible? But yeah, that's what they were called. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, they were a close group of friends who were writers, intellectuals, philosophers and artists who lived in and around Bloomsbury in London in the first half of the 20th century, which is the early 1900s. The output of their creative and academic careers collectively and individually influenced literature, modern attitudes towards feminism, pacifism and sexuality. There's an often often quoted quote, often quoted quote, a well-known quote that's put in a, quite a few of the articles that I read. It's attributed often to Dorothy Parker uh, as they lived in squares, painted in circles and loved in triangles. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, I used an article from Pink News, the Bloomsbury Group, LGBT and their influence on LGBT rights, um, the conversation, um, painting in circles and loving in triangles, the Bloomsbury Group's queer ways of seeing the world, uh, and messinesschic.com, twisted love affairs of the lost generation uh, of English eccentrics, and about 20 different Wikipedia articles about people's lives, because I wanted to see who was queer. So what do you know about the Bloomsbury Group? So didn't they start as a, sort of, I knew them as a, a writing group, but also there was a mixture of photographers, I think, as well in there, um, and they always used to have sex with each other. Yeah, loads, loads, loads of affairs, it turns yeah. out. Uh, yeah, basically that. So there's essentially, apparently, about ten core members to the group, many the, different variations of the list. Virginia Woolf part of it. Yeah, so she's one of the core members. Uh, there's lots of different... It, so it did fluctuate who was in it before the war, uh, First World War, and after the Second World War it changed. Okay. Uh, people moved out. The circles often overlapped with other acquaintances and um, weren't in you know, the proper in-clique. Uh, but regardless, uh, there's more or less ten. And they were Clive Bell, who was an art critic, Vanessa Bell, uh, who was a post-impressionist painter, E.M. Forster, fiction writer, Roger Fry, who was an art critic, a post-impressionist painter as well, Duncan Grant, a painter, John Maynard Keynes, who was an economist, the most boring of these apparently, (laughs) Desmond McCarthy, who was a literary journalist, Lytton Strachey, 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 biographer, uh, Leonard Wolfe, essayist and non-fiction writer, and Virginia Woolf, fiction writer and essayist, but... Mm. Close friends and brothers, sisters, and even sometimes partners uh, of the friends were not necessarily members of the Bloomsbury group, but do sort of come in and out of the picture. Keane's wife, uh, Lydia Lopokova, Lopokova, was only reluctantly accepted into the group, um, which is kind of sad. Uh, and there were certainly, you know, there was also writers who were at times friends of Virginia Woolf. They came in and out, um, but they were not distinctly, you know, the Bloomsbury group. Mm. That also includes uh, T.S. Eliot, Catherine Mansfield, Hugh Walpole, also Vita Sackville-West of Sissinghurst fame that mm-hmm. we talked about in the Queer Horticulture um, episode. Yeah. And Otterline, Mora, Morell, Dora Carrington, James and Alex Strakey, mm. which I now know is how you say that. So, so yeah, there was a lot of um in the in the letters between Virginia Woolf and, and Vita Sackville. Yes, yeah. there's a lot of um kind of invitations to lunch, and it yes. sounds very much like, you know, Vita's like, oh well, it's a little 
kind of essentially like it's a bit cliquey mate um yeah i don't really feel like welcome like as a you know i don't consider myself a writer i don't think i'm quite the right fit and it's a little bit formal for me anyway yeah exactly not everyone felt welcome all the members of the bloomsbury group proper were uh, except from duncan grant were educated at cambridge either trinity or king's college kind of gives you an idea of why it might be clear because they were also in a club at um cambridge and most of the women were educated at king's college london um at trinity uh lytton strakey leonard wolf uh saxon sydney turner and clive bell they all became friends with toby that was a th Toby, Toby Stephen, and it, and it was through Toby, Toby and Adrian's sisters Vanessa and Virginia that they met most of the women in the group. Okay. Okay. So Vanessa and Virginia were like, look, other women. Yeah. Oh, Wouldn't you like of, to meet some women? Yeah, a bit of a boys' club. But, uh... It was. Uh, yeah, really quite a boys' club. But Vanessa began the Friday club, and Toby ran the Thursday evenings, uh, which became the basis of Bloomsbury Group. So they'd meet alternately, okay. and it basically became let's do Cambridge, but in London. Yeah. Or yeah. So they were just trying to recreate what yeah, they yeah, had yeah. at university, basically. But sadly, Toby died um, of typhoid at 26. Um, he contracted it in Greece on holiday, and he died, sh- died shortly after coming back to oh, England no. in 1906. And what that essentially did was really solidify the bonds in the core starter group, because mm. they'd all lost someone very close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and they began to meet in earnest as kind of the Bloomsbury group um, in 1912. So they were just sort of from what I can gather, meet up, talk philosophy, art, make things, write things. They would promote each other's work, support each other's careers as well. So there was kind of a little bit of a... I, I kind of got a bit of an idea of, um, you know, the Freemasons and how like there's a real like helping each other up the ladder sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah, they really helped each other and boosted each other's work. Yeah, like um, a kind of art collective, DIY style. Exactly. And DIY got, with a lot of like privilege and money, I'm oh, assuming. Injected so in. much fucking money. Uh, They gained quite a reputation um, because they lived their lives outside the norm, both intellectually, emotionally, Mm -hmm. and sexually. They pushed the boundaries of what was acceptable publicly, um, but they also didn't flaunt everything queer. So bear in mind, it is still illegal to um, be queer at this point. You know, gross indecency was the word, um, was the conviction that you might get if you were decidedly gay. So although they did it, it wasn't it wasn't uh, convictable levels Mm. or um, outness. But nonetheless, they lived in a way that did seem to be without shame. Audaciously, one article called it. Uh, they lived audaciously, and this, in many ways, paved the way for influence, influencing other powerful acquaintances. And the Bloomsbury Group uh, are credited with having helped uh, monumental shifts in the LGBT rights movement. They, yeah, like you said, they were also from very wealthy, mostly upper middle class uh, professional families, and they had a lot of time and money to sit around and uh, just sort of think about things and write. Um, <laughs> you know, not, not everyone can not work and just think about how to live a better like have a better world you know but you know someone has to do it i suppose someone's got to think about the art exactly the bloomsbury group were not alone in pushing the boundaries though like it wasn't all down to them and they weren't the only people exploring lgbt issues through art and literature and after all you know they were operating just a few years after oscar wilde's death so he died Mm. in 1900 in november i think uh and orlando was published, Orlando is a Virginia Woolf uh, novel, was published the same year as the inflammatory, they called it, lesbian novel The Well of Loneliness by British author Radcliffe Hall. Mm -hmm. The Well of Loneliness sounds like the most depressing thing I could possibly imagine. I don't think I'll ever be able to read it because it sounds like something I'd I'd not be able to get through. No, I mean, just, yeah, if you already think, if you think of, like, LGBT people being outcast, if you have... Yeah, if the kind of go-to book of the time was called The Well of Loneliness, it just doesn't paint a picture. You're not going to be like, wow, that sounds like a life for me. Happy life, yeah, Yeah, lifestyle. Jesus, fuck. Welcome to the well. So it has been argued that um, the Bloomsbury Group were protected from, were actually, uh, were protected from the kind of treatment that the ordinary LGBT folk received because of their class, because of the glamorous status, their intellectual superiority, as it were. But their choice, the choices made by the members in the group to continue to love who they chose their artistic and literary influence as well like they were quite revered in some ways did contribute to a shift in british attitudes towards lgbtq rights and so they didn't just push the boundaries through intellectual conversations and being like wouldn't it be nice if the world was better you know they did live it as well Mm. you know they they sought to embody 
the ideals that they were envisioning. Mm. Although, uh, during a discussion in 1949, there was an architect called Frank Lloyd Wright. This is just uh, was quoted in one of the articles that I read, and I thought it was really funny. He said, The movement which we call modern art and painting has been greatly, or is greatly, in debt to homosexuals. Now, he did not mean that as a compliment, but I find it quite complimentary of us. Yes. <laughs> we're pushing the boundaries. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> exactly. Now, each of individual member of the group has their own unique story, many of which uh, included a complicated love affair. Now, I'm going to show Daisy something now. It's a list of each of the members, affairs with, affairs with, affairs with, affairs with, affairs with, married to, affairs with, crushed on, Oh my God, on, it's like on, Chinese on. whispers of Exactly. Affairs. So this is every single person within the group had some kind of affair or crush or unrequited love with people of like or the same or other to. sex or married to, yeah. broke up, didn't break up, but continued on with other people. Now, I'm not going to read out this list because I've got a slightly more prosaic oh version God, of like, that list. This needs to go like in the... You know, like in Wuthering Heights where they have the family... Yeah, like, exactly. ...family tree. This is neither. There's an amazing poster that is sadly now sold out on Etsy uh, that displayed all of these affairs with, affairs with, and it had, like, dotted lines yeah, for yeah. crushes and, like, solid lines for had sex with. But, yeah, let's get to it. So the affairs... Vanessa Bell, married to Clive Bell, she had a very tangled love life. In 1907, she married Clive Bell, and despite never officially separating, they both went on to have another number of relationships. So after less than 10 years of marriage, Vanessa hooked up with Duncan Grant and moved to Charleston House with him and his lover, David Garnett. Mm -hmm. Vanessa's husband, Clive Bell, also entertained a number of other affairs, other affairs, but still visited his wife in Charleston on the weekends. Uh Vanessa and Duncan continued their relationship Uh, and even had a daughter together, uh, Angelica, who believed that Clive was her father. When she later found out that he wasn't, she went on to marry Duncan's previous lover, David Garnett. What? Which I think is really weird. If my daughter went on to marry my friend... Yeah. I'd be like, please don't. Please don't do that. That's awful. So then... That's awful. Yeah, 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 Duncan Grant and Vanessa Bell did have an open relationship, and Grant believed that he had a right to love whoever he... Like, sorry, a right to love who he chose and to express himself frankly. Mm -hmm. This influenced a lot of his work, which is filled with seductive male nudes and homoerotic compositions, which, honestly, they're really great. Uh, Grant was known to say one should never be ashamed. Mm-hmm. Virginia Woolf's first love, Lytton Strakey, proposed to her in 1909, but then withdrew his proposal the next day, which is pretty fucking harsh. And um, he then wrote to his friend Leonard Woolf and was like, "Mate, can you marry Virginia?" And uh, yeah, I've offered her a wedding, and someone's got to do <laughs> someone's it. Someone's got to be there. And he, um, after a number of uh, attempts, she did actually accept his proposal. So Virginia and Leonard, because she thought it was a joke to begin with. She was like, this man I've never met keeps proposing to yeah, me. Yeah, I've been tricked by this once this day. <laughs> I will not be fooled again. Yeah, not in the next 24 hours. Um, and so after 15 years of marriage with Leonard, presumably Virginia decided to look elsewhere for some more fun or interesting things or to satisfy other uh, desires. And she began a long-term relationship with Vita Sackville-West. Vita uh, Sackville-West. West and her husband Harold Nicholson were both bisexual and they both continued affairs with with other people of the same sex and of the opposite sex as well and Virginia Woolf wrote of Virginia and Vita's uh, relationship um, Virginia wrote one of the first recorded books about gender fluidity which was Orlando it's a biography and it's inspired by the it's apparently inspired by the history of Woolf's um, relationship with Vita and it's regularly discussed as not only extraordinarily extraordinarily progressive but it's also one of the most it's been described as one of the most charming love letters ever written and her Sackville West son Nigel once said of the book the effect of Vita on Virginia is all contained in Orlando, the longest and most charming love letter in literature. Which mm-hmm. I think is so lovely. Yeah, that's definitely a nice uh, description of it, isn't it? Exactly. And then, additionally, some of the other members, uh, though she pursued relationships with women, Dora Carrington, Carrington loved and was loved by Strakey, who almost exclusively was attracted to men. Um, but clearly there was something in Dora that um, did something for him, and clearly something in him that did something for her that nobody else did. Uh, and, main, and there was a select few of Duncan Grant's male lovers continue to visit the Charleston house in Sussex where Grant lived with Vanessa Bell. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then we've got Maynard Keynes. He began his, I don't know, sexually active life, you know, when he became a teenager, presumably. He had relationships pretty much exclusively with men. 
and they have lots of his diaries from his time at Eton, uh, which is an all boys school, that detail his exploits, his sexploits, if you will, with lots of other men. <laughs> other options. Yep. Yeah, there's just a lot of information about that. And then in the summer of 1908, like very much in quite a small space of time, this isn't chrono- chron- chronologically ordered. Okay. So in this the all sum- happening. This is all just like yeah. happening at once, okay? So imagine all of this at once, and it's very intense. In the summer of 1908, Duncan Grant was writing anguish letters to John Maynard Keynes. They'd sort of started an affair and then they'd had to separate because um, Maynard Keynes was on holiday. No, sorry, Grant was on holiday with some family friends and he just couldn't bear being apart from Keynes. Keynes? Yeah, Keynes. And the letters expose just like how how much he longs for him, mm. and the and he also is longing for like the commodity, uh, sorry, the comfort of being with others with a shared experience. Like it's not just about the fact that he wants to be with his lover, but he needs the company of somebody who understood what it meant to be a gay man living in Britain before it was decriminalised, which, mm. as we've talked about before, was in 1967. And there's a quote here from one of those letters: "How much I want to scream sometimes here for want of being able to say something I mean." It's not only that one's a sodomite that one has to hide, but one's whole philosophy of life, one's feelings for inanimate things, I would shock, uh, I feel would shock some people. And these letters, you know, are quite revealing Mm. of the way that Grant and also like vocalises a thing that a lot of us feel as queer people is a sense of alienation at the hands of your sexuality, but because of a differing way that we relate to the world, mm-hmm. uh, we perceive the world differently. And he understood, Grant, in this letter, that his queerness is a central organising structure for his vision and his personhood. So it's his whole philosophy as life, of yeah. life, you know. By make, And he makes this explicit connection, what's not only that one's a sodomite, that he, he calls it, between his sexuality and the way he sees the world. And it leads us um, to consider, in one of the articles that I read, it says, in what ways do our sexual pleasures and fantasies inform the way we see the world? And I think it's an important question. Mm. There's a lot of people that sort of want us to assimilate to a heteronormative world, but actually that just doesn't cut it for a lot of queer people. It doesn't cut it to just assimilate into what already exists. We want to create a world that we love and that we made because our interests and, like, aesthetics and desires and, and sort of comforts are different. Yeah. It's about building that community based on, you know, similar outlook on life and and... Yeah, building building something that you know you do have a bit of ownership mm. over, and where you don't have to hide, where you can be authentic from the off, because you don't have to convince people that it's it's okay that you're gay. Like yeah. you already have that understanding, that shared understanding, and I think that's what you know. The Bloom's group group was certainly a very cliquey kind of exclusive group in some respects, but also a, you know you do find a lot of these like kind of safety in in numbers and these kind of group settings where people have you know huge amounts of like hedonism and freedom mm. and especially before it was decriminalized like those are really like sacred spaces yeah, yeah. Um, and it's interesting because there's a lot of like talk about oh but it's okay now it's okay to be gay and it's not we don't it's not just about being blankly accepted and say okay that's fine that you're gay we want to be brought fully into the way the world is created and be part of the way the world is created and have our thoughts, opinions and creations be part of that and not just to be, be like... Valued. Yeah, not just to continue manufacturing the world as it's always been but just also be gay in it uh, or like just be queer in it. We want to cr- be part of the creation process and they're very different things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I just think it's it's really important. But... But also, like, you know, a lot of these people are bisexual as, you know, and I think if you're surrounded by people who are either either kind of, you know, gay men or or gay women, and you are, I don't know, to be able to, you know, to be accepted and to explore your sexuality, you know, whether you were closeted before and and you you come out as gay or whether you're, you're bisexual and sort of, you know, that side of your, I don't know, your sexuality is ignored, like to be in an accepting space, of course, you know, they're all having affairs and yeah of being, course i mean exploring with each other who among us hasn't like been in part of a, a queer friend circle that ended up being like a little bit incestuous because when your dating pool is small you end up dating each other yeah and you all stay friends a lot of yeah. the time yeah. <laughs> because you need because to. you have to <laughs> because family comes first yeah. exactly 
family. Yeah, it's important. And I, just on your point as well, like, that is really important in that there wasn't really the um, grasping for labels. There wasn't the, oh, well, I'm I'm gay or I'm bisexual or anything. It just, I was straight and now I'm gay. Yeah, there was just a that. kind of fluidity to what yeah. they were doing. They're like, well, I want to sleep with this person yeah. now and then that I'm person. A, I'm a like, painter, but also a poet and also, you know, suck dick sometimes. Yeah, and exactly. Gay. And that's fine. And like, you know, case of point, you know, Dora and uh, like Carrington and Strakey both were usually homosexual but also had an affection for each other which was heterosexual and there was just like oh that's fine and that's yeah that's fine and but yeah so it's all kind of largely comprised of queer people um, I don't understand this this line I've put here. Queer women, men, and writers. Uh, I don't think that was <laughs> what I intended it to be. I think I've modelled that there. But they regarded. Yeah, are you the... a queer woman, a man, or a writer? Exactly. Those are the three genders. <laughs> Those are the three genders. And they regarded the convention of conventions of the previous generation with really qu- critical suspicion. And the each associate of the Bloomsbury Group sought liberation in sexual, social, and artistic terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, They began to sadly break up during the 1930s and 40s after the deaths of several of their key members, but Mm. their eccentric clubhouse still lives on. Ah. The Charleston House was the epicentre of the Bloomsbury group, the Bloomsbury group, and the world's only complete Bloomsbury interior remains there. Ah. Uh, Much of the activity took place here and it still holds a still uh, strong presence of tolerance and freedom. And it's open to the public and remains a sort of time capsule for visitors to immerse themselves in the life of the Bloomsbury Group members. It's really cute. Nice. It's really nice. You can see all these sort of like places for people to sit and write and like do little workshops, presumably. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I'm putting a lot of imagination into it, but it looks, it looks like really, a more wholesome. Kind they're of like fireplaces <laughs> completely like painted around with a kind of weird cherub thing. Yeah, it just it's very creative. It looks really great. That sounds lovely. Maybe we should go and do some do some writing there and think about that. Do a seance. Space. <laughs> exactly. Do a seance. See what we can find out. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna send you a link to the poster that I saw. I wonder if enough of us send requests to the artist. She'll make some more prints of it because it's really really good and yeah. she's done all these little um not caricatures but Sounds portraits like of everyone and nice. then drawn all the lines between them a bit like one of those detective maps on the walls yeah, yeah, where yeah. everything's linked by yarn and being like it's all connected it's because all connected. they were all connected they were all connected yes um <laughs> not through blood <laughs> but through Ooh. anyway yeah um, <laughs> through their words and their beliefs beliefs uh, that's so fascinating. I think we should definitely get one of those. If the poster does come back into print, yes. we should absolutely have it, hang it in you know, a museum, for one, and yeah. also our homes. Absolutely. To yeah. remember where we've come from. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Hannah. That was super no interesting. Problem. Um, I love hearing about. Yeah, I didn't know. I didn't know quite how um, tangled those lines so are tangled. in the Bloomsbury group. Obviously, yeah. like you hear about these things a lot, and um, I'm really enjoying just getting to dig a little deeper on some of these kind of iconic yeah groups of people you know people aren't in isolation there is a community that has existed for a super long time yeah absolutely absolutely thank you very much daisy and uh thank you everyone for listening if you want to get hold of us on social media it's at radio zaddy x-a-d-d-y radio spelt the traditional way um on twitter and on instagram please get in touch and check out the uh social media to see any pictures of people we put up i might i'm going to link to the poster probably just going to have a selfie of me in a spacesuit yeah exactly see daisy in spacesuit it'll be great all right thank you very much everyone thank you bye bye